Welcome. This is the Into the Wilderness podcast, and I am your host, Byron Pace. This is episode 219, and a modern huntsman production. I am speaking with Dr. Nick Fox, OBE. He is a wildlife biologist, a falconer, a farmer, a conservationist. He sits on numerous boards from the Bevis Trust to the Falconry Heritage Trust and several in between. He has been an advisor to the government and was made an officer to the Order of the British Empire for services to falconry and the conservation of raptors in 2014. It's a conversation that could have easily been three times as long as it was. And I know that you're going to enjoy this as much as I did. There is so much that we don't get to in this podcast, so I'd encourage you to read more about Nick's works, and all of the links for that will be in the description for the show notes. But before we jump into it, pre-orders from Modern Huntsman are now open on the website, modernhuntsman.com. But importantly, if you make a pre-order now or become a Vanguard subscriber, which includes getting your two books a year and discounts and a host of other benefits, you will get a volume three for free. It's worth heading over to the website uh, to have a look if you haven't been there for a while because there are three new subscription levels. A free level, which gives you limited benefits and some digital access. A middle tier called a Scowry, which is full digital access to the entire archive along with some discounts uh, to the book and online shop. And finally, the top tier, which is called Vanguard. Uh, and there you get your two books a year. You get the biggest discounts and benefits and a whole host of other things, which you can read on the website. Uh, the work in volume 10 is incredible, but there's a fairly limited run. So I would be sure to get your copy in now, either through subscription or through pre-order uh, before it sells out. Lastly, and as always, a big thank you to the Patreon supporters. And in the top tier this week, I have Richard McNeil, Ronnie Speakman of RD Contracting, James Marchington, the guys at South Ash are stalking, Dick Exromer, and Mark Zabrowski. If you would like to support the show, head over to patreon.com forward slash Byron Pace. And if you want to see more of what I'm up to, head over to byronpace.com. I have just updated my website, actually. Uh, I've been doing it over the last couple of weeks. Uh, hopefully it's a, a little cleaner and uh, easier to navigate and some of the most important things are on there, or at least some of the most recent things because it was a little outdated, uh, but I will be adding in the coming weeks. And on there, if you haven't seen it already, is the trailer to what will be my first feature film, which is releasing in the early part of 2023 called Paid in Blood. I've been releasing little updates of that on social media, particularly on Instagram and auto-populating Facebook. Um, but yeah, there's a whole page for Paid in Blood on byronpace.com. So go and watch that if you haven't, and I'd love to hear your feedback. Nick, welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. Uh, I was having a look through the list of things that you're involved with and currently do or have done in the past and it made it kind of almost impossible for me to try and work out where to start but uh, i know that when we were originally trying to have a conversation you were in the desert or maybe you're still there i don't know where am i speaking to you from um no i'm in britain i'm in west wales today and we've just sent 20 falcons this morning to saudi and we We'll be taking five racing teams on Wednesday to Saudi to introduce hunt racing to them. Oh, wow. Okay. There's so many things to unpack there. So when I spoke to you, when we were emailing a couple of weeks ago, you were somewhere. Were you in Saudi? 
Uh, I'm happy in Abu Dhabi. Ah, okay, okay. Falcons racing, it's a world that I don't, and this is just a tiny fraction of the stuff that I'm sure that we're going to talk about today, but I know that this is a big part of your life. Um, it's, uh, it's a world that I don't know that well. My uncle flies birds of prey, um, so I have, I've done a little bit of it with him, but this is a totally different world that you're involved in. Ex explain this to me and what, what, what on earth you were just talking about there, sending birds to the other side of the world. Okay, well, the main prey of the Arabs used to be, well, it still is, the Hubara bustard. But the desert's been hammered, the bustards have been hammered, and basically um, they haven't got anything to hunt. Um, we've been breeding falcons for um, almost 50 years now, and the... United Arab Emirates, the UAE, uh, now have most of their falcons are captive bred. So the, there's not a shortage of falcons, but there is a shortage of something to hunt. And in fact, it, falconry is illegal in a lot of the Gulf simply because there's nothing to hunt. Uh, so, so the falconers, you know, they're all dressed up, but nowhere to go. Um, so in the evenings, when they're training their falcons, um, they call them to the lure on the desert. So they started timing them. And then they developed a race against the clock um, because you can't fly the falcons together like as horses. You fly them one at a time and time them over 400 meters. So that's their flat race. And they've been developing that for the last 10 or 15 years, and they have huge prizes of four-wheel drive vehicles and whatnot. Um, so that's what a lot of them are now doing. But we're falconers here in the UK, and we hunt crows, and we hunt on horses. And crows are quite difficult to catch. Um, and they're quite an adversary for a falcon. And when you're training a young falcon, you have to kind of get it to know what a crow looks like and develop its hunting skills. So what we did was, over the last 10 years, we've developed a robotic prey that looks like a crow. So it's a radio-controlled model that can be caught by a falcon without injuring the falcon. And the model can also be other species such as pheasants and seagulls and hubara and partridges and so on. <clears throat> so we've been training our falcons like that. And that's developed its own competition, which we call the hunt race. Um, and that's much more exciting and visual. And we do that down in Wiltshire at a farm called Vowley every year and teams come and fly their falcons the the flat race is really boring to watch but the hunt race is exciting to watch so the arabs have invited us out to saudi to show them how we do it um so that's basically what we will be doing they've seen us hunt racing here in the uk so they want us to do it in in saudi <clears throat> Huh. Um, so, so this is going to be 
an evolution of their just straightforward timed racing. Because I, I think there's maybe not, for a lot of people in the rest of the world, there's probably not quite an understanding of how fanatical um, some Arab countries are about their falcons. They are fanatical. And if anybody sees the track, fresh tracks of the Hubara, the phones are all ringing and that far will be that Hibara will be hunted and dead by the evening, probably. Um, they're, they're pretty hard on them. Um, so what we're doing is uh, a conservation thing because in 2003, UNESCO um, had the, de- developed a new convention called um, uh, Intangible Cultural Heritage, and I'm sure you've heard about that. Um, and we wrote a submission for UAE uh, to UNESCO, and we've had in 2010 we had falconry recognised, um, and it's inscribed now on the representative list of the intangible cultural heritage of mankind. And since then, we we did that for 11 countries, and now we have um, 24 countries signed up by UNESCO. And part of that is we have to retain the culture of hunting, the intangible culture of hunting. And if Hubara are short, we still have to think of the skills of training the falcons, teaching the young people out in the desert and so on. And also, if you look at parallels with, your, for example, game dogs, spaniels and pointers, um, or with horses, once you introduce a competition, you develop bloodlines which uh, separate away from the working animal. Yeah. Okay, so if you look at horses, you've got a lean endurance horse, you've got a more solid show jumper, you've got the thoroughbred flat race horses, and then you have the dressage horses, and, of course, you've got the working cart horse, shire horse type animals, the cobs, they all have their own purposes and have been developed along different lines. With gun dogs, well, you've seen what's happened to things like spaniels. You've got the show spaniels, which have been ruining the working spaniel. (laughs) They don't even look like the same dog. (laughs) They don't. They don't. So that's something to consider. So, So how does that work? The this um, sorry, what did you say it was called? The for hunt, cultural heritage hunt Prote- protection. Okay, no, the protection so of cultural heritage. It's the intangible cultural heritage. So the pyramids, Hadrian's Wall, that's tangible. Yeah, intangible is culture and activities handed down from one generation to the next. Uh, and what can that be applied to? Because, I, I mean, as you're saying this now, I, I'm thinking of a whole handful of things on my doorstep up here in Scotland. A lot a lot of that's to do with hunting, fishing, and like, field sports pursuits that uh, you could argue are exactly that. How, does, yeah. uh, how, how do they decide what should go into this list? And indeed, once it's on that list, what kind of protection does it afford? Okay, so... Um... First of all, the country has to sign the convention. Britain hasn't. Okay. But 
if it has, and about, I, I can't remember, I think a large number of countries have now. Most of them have. They've signed the convention. And to make a submission, you've got to define your activity. So we had to make a film, we produced a book, and we had to do it for all the different nations involved. Once we've defined it and given background material and so on and and identified practitioners who do it uh, and how it's passed on to the next generation, if it's inscribed by UNESCO and the government signs it off, that means the government has to protect that bit of its cultural heritage. And I, I know what you're thinking. You're yeah. thinking, well, that would be great. That would be very handy yeah. for some of our hunting with dogs, because because I work on hunting with dogs as well. Yeah, along uh, with a host of other things, which you could argue are culturally yeah, important, yeah. but are dying Absolutely. out. Absolutely. So, um, so we've done it now for twenty four countries, but that doesn't include Britain because we haven't signed up. Is there resistance there, or they just haven't got round to it? There's resistance there, I think. Um, and I can tell you why. I think I know why. I wrote to Jeremy Hunt when he was Minister of Culture. And he said, well, you can't define intangible cultural heritage. Fair enough, but UNESCO has actually defined it. If you Google UNESCO ICH, you can see all of the different things which have been protected in all the different countries as examples. No, I think the problem is actually deeper than that. Um, I had to go to all of the UNESCO conferences for some years when we did it. And what's, what came out of it was Britain, Canada, USA, Australia, and New Zealand have not signed up. And I wrote to the minister in New Zealand because I live some of the time in New Zealand. Um, whereas China, India, and a lot of the small countries are all signed up and have all sorts of culture. And I think the French last week got the baguette. <laughs> I protect. saw that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, which is very French. So I thought, well, why is that then? Why haven't these countries signed up? Well, if you look at New Zealand and Australia, Canada and USA, they all have their indigenous populations. The New Zealanders have the Maoris, Australians have the Aborigines, the North Americans have the North American Indians and Eskimos and all of those. And those have all been colonized by white men, white people, who have become the dominant culture, if you like. So if they signed up, actually their first port of call would be to protect all of their indigenous cultures. And right now, although we make all the right noises, that doesn't sit very comfortably with a lot of politicians. So it's not really in their interest to promote their indigenous minorities any more than they have to. But what about UK? Now, what about UK? Yeah, now UK, completely different story. 
here in UK, and we're, we're dealing with quite a sensitive subject here, so you'll have to bear with me. <clears throat> here in UK, we pride ourselves on being a multicultural society. And that's fine. So we've had different uh, people from different places and cultures settle in Britain. And you then have a tension between each, each culture retaining its culture and, on the other hand, <clears throat> merging into the British culture. There's a tension there. And while we're busy sort of being very woke about racism and, um, and culture, uh, it does mean that um, we neglect our own indigenous culture. We almost, in Britain, apologize for our culture. It's almost embarrassing to put a Union Jack up. You're accused of being nationalistic and all the rest of it. So the politicians are kind of in a rock, between a rock and a hard place because the, you know, you're trying to look after your minorities, yes, uh, and the indigenous ones don't get so much of a look in. Now, it gets worse than that. I, I was a um, scientific advisor to the all-party parliamentary middle-way group on hunting with dogs when we were fighting the hunting bill, which was enacted in 2005, the Hunting Act. And I'm sure you're familiar with the arguments and what happened. Yeah, yeah I remember it well. The rest of it. And, and I gave a speech in Hyde Park and so on and had to... I, I did a, a study um, on wounding rates in shooting foxes, and I published it in the Journal of Animal Welfare. And, you know, I'm a hunting person, and I, I don't shoot much nowadays, um, but I used to. It might be useful, uh, Nick, sorry, just it might be useful for those people who don't know what we're quite referring to is just give the the potted backstory to, to hunting with dogs and, and what was happening in 2005, just to give context for what you're about to say. Yeah. Okay, so um, hunting with dogs uh, comprises mainly two activities, scent hounds, which is things like foxhounds and staghounds, beagles, and there's the gaze hounds, which are the greyhounds, lurchers, and whippets. And some of those are quite organized in Britain. Fox hunting, you see it on the Christmas cards and so on, people in pink coats galloping around the countryside. Um, it's very ritualized. And there are, oh, I forget how many hunts there are in Britain at the moment, 150 or something like that. Uh, and they meet all over the countryside, different places every time. Uh, during the winter season, and traditionally, obviously, it was more the landowners and people that could afford to have horses. So um, a lot of people then resented that. So hunting has a big class issue involved. And the Labour Party... Um, in the late 1990s and early 2000s, when Tony Blair was Prime Minister, 
they were getting their own back on the Conservatives, on the Tories, um, for the miners. And generally, they're trying to get at the Tories. So one way to do it was to um, stamp on hunting. It was an they easy vote winner at the time. Welfare. Sorry? It was an easy vote winner at the time. At the time. And they said it was to do with animal welfare, and we looked at all of that. Um, and there's the Burns inquiry and a number of other inquiries and reports and so on. Although it was ostentatiously, oh, it's cruel to hunt, it was about class and politics. And Tony Blair later said he regretted that it was passed. So um, that uh, eventually was passed. Now we have trail hunting and they're trying to stop trail hunting. But to get back to UNESCO, although Britain hasn't signed it, we have another piece of legislation called Protected Belief. Um, and if you Google protected belief, you'll see there are a number of criteria for a belief to be protected. And actually, anti-fox hunting has now become a protected belief. Fox hunting could be a protected belief, and we claim falconry as a protected belief. Um, it's, not, um, it's not an all-embracing piece of legislation. It's more to do with things like employment. If you lose your job, for example, say you're a, a Sikh and your employer fires you for wearing your turban, you're not allowed to fire somebody for wearing a turban because that's a protected belief. Uh, okay. So okay, hang on. So, <laughs> so, the, so you're putting something that is uh, deeply historic and uh, you know uh, a very clear and established religion like Sikhism and it is in the same piece of legislation as somebody who doesn't like fox hunting? It's covered by the same got, piece of legislation? I don't know how they got that in. It's um, insane. I know. Don't, don't expect the world to be logical, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so anyway, um, I'll give you another concrete example. Scottish mountain hare. Yeah. Yep. They've just gone and protected that based on the Werity report. And the Werity report looked at shooting hares on estates in Scotland. It didn't mention falconry. And people hunt hares with eagles and, and hawks in Scotland. Yeah, I have a friend who does it, yeah. Exactly. So they just banned that out of hand. So we protested that and had a consultation in April with the Scottish Parliament. And I made a submission and they've asked me to come again as a witness next week. Um, unfortunately, I'm going to be on a plane. So I'm going to try and do a parliamentary Zoom meeting on a plane, which is going to be a first <laughs> for me. <laughs> um, but in this uh, banning of hunting hares in Scotland, they, they made a right cock up of the whole damn thing. They didn't know what they were on about. And they wrote to the falcons and they said, if you fly your hawk anywhere within the range of the mountain hare, <clears throat> you are being reckless and you're liable. Well, that's obviously rubbish because <clears throat> there's, um, you, you, that means equally you couldn't take your dog for a walk where there's a mountain hare. But equally, it means you couldn't fly your 
hawk or run your dog anywhere in Scotland because there's protected species all over the place. Yeah. And you certainly couldn't let your cat out. <laughs> so we yeah, they won't want to go down these, that rabbit hole. Absolutely. So we pointed out some of these things to them and the civil servant had his knuckles wrapped. But, but this is ongoing at the moment. And <clears throat> so then they're saying, well, you can hunt mountain hares for certain purposes. One is protection of young trees, forestry, that kind of thing, habitat. Um, and then there's one which is, um, I think it's called social purposes. So I'm saying to them, falconry is a protected belief. We have been hawking in Scotland since before Christianity came, since before Scotland became Scotland. Uh, and it is deeply embedded in our culture. And we want to continue. And from the ecological point of view, 500 to 1,000 hares caught by hawks every year has no impact whatsoever. It's welfare friendly. It's compatible with other land uses, blah, blah, blah. So that's the argument I'll be putting to them next week, and I have already done so so that we could have a general license to carry on hunting hares in Scotland with our hawks because it is uh, a long-established culture and it's not incompatible with other things. That would be our argument. Do you think there's a hope that they will allow that? There seems to be a, a very little uh, willingness to undo restrictions such uh -uh. as... Uh, You're right. You're right, Byron. You're right. Don't try to undo a law. That's a pain in the ass. No, what I'm saying is the law's there already. The clause is there. There is a social purpose let out clause. Use it. Use it. I'm not saying, oh, no, you've got to change the whole damn law because that's, that's a problem. Um, so that's what I'm suggesting for that one. And as you know, because you're field sports, all of these things, it's, it's salami slicing. It's death by a thousand cuts. They stop you hunting hares. They stop you doing this. Until in the end, you can hardly get out of the house. So we have to keep fighting for every little snippet. Um, I'm curious, um, just to go back momentarily to 2005 with the, the banning of uh, hunting with dogs. You said that you were involved in the the animal welfare aspect of it, because that was the, one of the big question marks yeah. or the arguments yeah. against yeah. it is that it's, an, it's inherently cruel and that is one of the main reasons why it, it shouldn't happen. What was the, the, the investigation and the evidence that was presented either for or against that? Oh, that's a long, complicated story. <laughs> the Burns, Burns Inquiry summarized it and when Burns was asked at the end of his report, whether fox hunting was cruel, he said, no, it isn't, not compared to other methods. And, I mean, I, I'm a field sports person, but I'm also a conservationist welfare person as well. Um, and there's some things, like snaring foxes, it's not the most pleasant um, way of killing a fox. Um, 
shooting foxes, we studied that in quite a lot of depth and I've shot myself a lot of foxes and seen a lot shot. There's quite a quite a big wounding rate when you're doing shooting, not just foxes of anything. So <clears throat> after I did that study of shooting foxes and we shot about 2,000 targets based on a real fox, and we did skilled shooters, unskilled shooters. We did shotguns, rifles. We did uh, number six up to BB or AAA, um, choke, open barrel, all sorts of things. We tested all sorts of regimes. The wounding rates, you know, were significant. And, and I must admit that since then, I've hardly taken a gun out of the cupboard. I'll, I'll pop a pop a rabbit out the bedroom window with a 2-2 two, two, or I'll shoot a few squirrels or something. But by and large, it put me off shooting. And Is, are you specifically talking about shotguns? Shotguns and, shot. and rifles, have, rifles have a wounding rate too. But part of, part of that then comes back to the shooter. Absolutely, now, when yeah. You're doing, when you're doing pest control... The idea of pest control is to kill your pest or, or put it out of action. And, you know, I've seen farmers here sh shooting foxes 80 yards, 80 metres, the number six in a shotgun, <laughs> um, you know, hoping that it'll wing it enough so that it'll die later and it'll be out of, out of the way. That's pest control. And I don't think the common mouse trap that we're using in houses actually passes the humane trapping standards. You know the the international humane trapping standards for traps. Yeah, which is the reason that they had to upgrade all of the the traps for stoats. And they were years late doing that. Years late implementing that, and they didn't do proper tests. They relied on New Zealand to do it. Um, but anyway, a lot of those things still don't pass, but because they're not a fur-bearing species, we get away with it because those trapping standards only apply to fur-bearers, which I think in UK is the stoat and the beaver. And we have beavers here on the farm. I've been checking beaver traps all morning. So uh, that is pest control. The idea is to kill the thing. Recreational shooting isn't about that it's the opposite so to be efficient with pest control you want the minimum man days of effort the maximum kill rate for an effective field sport it's the opposite you want the maximum person days of the sport the minimum kill rate and that's why you have things like fly fishing you make it harder for yourself. This is about the balance between the predator and the prey. So as a falconer, I'm trying to make it quite hard for myself. And maybe we'll have 12 people on horses out hawking and a few followers in cars and whatnot. And maybe we'll catch two or three crows in the whole day. That's fine. That's very efficient from the recreational point of view and inefficient from the pest control point of view. Yeah, you're not going to control crow, crow populations by taking three out in a day. No, no. 
But mind you, we do get out those fell crows right up on the hills, the nasty ones that are yeah. real trouble. But um, uh, the same with hunting with dogs. Now, a lot of the fox hunters said, oh, we're doing pest control. Well, of course, fox hunting isn't doing pest control. It's a, it's a leisure activity. And it's very, very efficient. Because the average hunting day could be um, between 50 and 150 people out on horses or in cars uh, to catch one fox. Whereas if you look at something else, um, for example, driven pheasant shooting, I don't know what the current figures are, but it used to be 10.3 pheasants per shooter per day. And that's recreational, but it's not efficient. You've got too big a kill rate um, for your man days. And I don't, I don't really like driven pheasant shooting anymore. I'd like to see it made harder, less killed, more time spent doing it, more skill from the people doing it. A bit like walked up, a bit like walked up uh, rough shooting. Yeah, I have I have um, a Munsterlander. We have a Munsterlander and a Lurcher here on the farm. Munsterlander, good um, hunt point retrieved dog. You can go out, get a point, shoot a pheasant or whatever it is. Uh, it'll retrieve it. You don't fire another touch shot until you've retrieved what you've already shot at. Um, and you may come back with two or three things. That's That's it. But you've had a good look around and so on Whereas yeah, there's, a, there's an, an issue there with expectation or the, i think there's an expectational shift from people who are, are shooting who are maybe used to shooting bigger days like you just described as to what you should get in return for your money because if the expectation completely shifted then you would still end up with the same uh the same number of people on the ground the same amount of flow of of economic interest in but the uh, kill rates would be would be lower because there's an expectation you're going to have to work harder and maybe actually yeah. even hunt rather than just shoot yeah i know we've had people out driven grouse shooting who've never seen a pointer point mm. that's, sad. What it was. that's sad isn't it that's really yeah sad. i love watching pointers work <laughs> yeah so um so what you're saying, Brian, uh, Baron, is that to make it swing the balance a bit, and, and that's a tricky one for driven game. So one of the things they do now, obviously, is using clay pigeons with um, artificial game drives, which in a way is similar to what we're doing with the Falcons and the Hunt racing. Um, but otherwise, it is quite difficult because... Yeah, people expect to kill a whole load of things, and a lot of them don't have the field craft or the fitness to do anything other than stand there and pop their guns off. Uh, you could say, oh, right, well, why don't we go for steel shot and muzzle loaders? <laughs> now, I, I can see you rolling your eyeballs from here. Um but somehow make it so that you can't just kill everything all the time. 
And that means you don't have to produce so much game all the time. And a lot of your problems go away if you don't have to be producing hundreds and hundreds of game. Now, the Welsh government have come out and said they are against shooting as a leisure activity. When was that? Was that this year? Yep. Yep. They've come oh, out. I must and have missed that. that. Well, and, and I think the Countryside Alliance have been very remiss at not flagging it up more. So, so what will this they... mean? Well, I mean, what, I mean yeah. it's fine to say, make a statement like that. I mean, you know where they stand. Yeah. I don't think it's actually any surprise that that's their stance. And I would, yeah. I would guess that the Scottish government would probably be hearing what the Welsh government thought. So, you know, we kind of support that too. Yeah, yeah. And if you're a politician, how would you implement that? So two ways you can do that. One is you can stop it on any government land, maybe Forestry Commission as well. Um, yeah, but of course the government in Britain doesn't own that much land. There's not a lot of public land, <laughs> maybe Crown Estates as well. And or you can say, right, well, we'll ban game rearing and releasing. And I think that's what they're going to do in Wales, certainly. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, there's so many blurred lines there because there are more, just if you talk about hunting deer, there are more people that do it recreationally just for the sheer joy of it. Yes, it, it, you could argue, or it is indeed part of some broader management strategy. And so, you know, maybe it isn't for pleasure. But the insane thing about that is that they're saying that you can't enjoy what you do. Now, th that's a very good point, Byron, um, because I've just painted to you two categories, um, pest control and uh, if you like, recreational hunting, shooting. There are some other categories as well, uh, one of which is food or furs, that kind of thing. Um, and um, they are by no means um, separate groups. You can go out, right, in an evening and have a pleasant evening shooting a couple of rabbits. So you've done some pest control, you've had some recreational shooting, and you've got food to eat. And and why not? Why not? You know, it's not costing the taxpayer anything. Uh, perfectly valid arguments. Uh, a wood pigeon, another example. You know, it hasn't got the social cachet that grouse and pheasants have, which is, you know, you referred to earlier. Um, but it's a damn sporting animal, uh, and at times it needs controlling. With the deer, deer is a tricky one because, you know, numbers are going up all over the place. And in lowland Britain with the, with the roe deer and the muntjac, um, they, they need killing, and I, I don't even know if there's enough recreational killing to keep on top of it. <clears throat> Um, but certainly um, don't let us get caught in the trap that the only hunting that is permissible or socially acceptable, I think the word now is social license or something, that, 
don't fall in the trap that only pest control is an acceptable reason for hunting animals. Well, just going back to uh, the example you were giving earlier, I think one of the dangers with deer as they are increasingly being viewed as a as a pest is it comes with a certain mentality which has a lot less care about the uh, the individual and the welfare of those animals when they're regarded as, as pests. If you think about, and you were kind of alluding to this just with the, with the traps that we put in our house, and I actually put a couple of traps in my house the other day because I could hear a mouse in my roof. Um, but if you think about what we do to pests, even here, I mean, New Zealand's the, you know one of the worst examples of it anywhere, um, but we put poison down all around our gardens, uh, in our houses, to control mice and rats, which obviously not only, well, maybe not obvious to some people, but uh, not only can impact the thing that we're targeting, but a whole host of other animals, including raptors. Because yeah. they're pests, this is okay. Yeah, so what I do then is I blow the whole thing wide open because a lot of you see, when you're trying to defend a sport like fox hunting, it's very easy for the whole debate to focus, zoom right in on one little activity. No, look at trapping mice in your house. Look at the poisons that you put out. Look at the agricultural uh, chemicals that are being used. Look at domestic cats. Look at the whole spectrum. And the other thing to bear in mind, which is usually muddled up, it's a difference between suffering and cruelty. Suffering is pain experienced by the animal. Cruelty is what's going on in the mind of the person doing it. Okay? And it's easy to say something's cruel, but that doesn't necessarily get to it because I don't think many hunters set out to be cruel. But you have to accept that some hunting can cause suffering. That can happen. But equally, letting your cat out will cause suffering. Um, so uh, I know with the cat and dog argument, a lot of the anti-fox hunters are cat owners. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> it somewhat goes hand in hand <laughs> for some reason. Yeah. yeah. And the cat owners, I don't know if you know of a guy called the Reverend Dr. Lindsay. He's got, he does theology at Oxford and he's rabidly anti-hunting. No, I don't know. Uh, Google him. He He was on one of the inquiries I did that I was on in um, with the fox hunting thing together with Stephen Harris, Professor Stephen Harris from Bristol. He had cats, and he's quite happy for the cats to go hunting, but he was anti-people going hunting with dogs. Now, <clears throat> then it's a question of intent. And basically what he's saying is he lets his cats out he doesn't intend them to kill anything, but it's their wild nature. In law, it's called ferai naturae. The cats have a wild nature. You can't stop them hunting. Well, you can. You just don't let them out, like you don't let your ferrets out. Um, 
Uh, and because he, as the cat owner, didn't intend to cause suffering, he wasn't being cruel, never mind that the cats caused the suffering, he wasn't enjoying it, so it didn't matter. <laughs> That's okay. such a naive view of the world. Yeah, it is. But there's millions of people will stoutly maintain their right to let their cats out and yet not let you hunt with a dog under supervision for species in season under control. Hmm. And as you know, cats are killing, I think, 270 million animals a year. And because they're yeah. mostly small birds and small um, mammals and reptiles, people don't think of them so much as they do a bigger animal. Yeah, no, that's yeah. true. A rat doesn't, if killing a rat doesn't have the social opprobrium that killing a Bambi. So these are some of the prejudices one has to work around. And by opening up the debate to the wider perspective, people have to then look at the plank in their own eye. Are you worried that there might be a time where you can't hunt with birds of prey here in the UK? Or is some of the things that you're you've implemented, and, and I want to talk more about the, uh, the radio controlled, I'm, I'm guessing they are, um, uh, prey species that you've crafted to be able to train the um, your raptors, is that going to replace it? Or does it matter <laughs> if you can still fly them? I mean, how do you feel about that? Because there, in this instance, there is actually an alternative for the recreational aspect of it. Okay, now, you're a hunter. There's more to it than just the actual killing bit. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so in, a, in any hunt, there's two phases. There's the search and there's the attack. Okay. So when you're out shooting with a spaniel, the spaniel's searching, eventually it'll flush it and you then shoot it. Um, with a hawk, it's similar. You can't, you have to first find your game uh, in a attackable situation, put it that way, before you can actually do the flight. If you have a robotic prey or a clay pigeon, you're just launching the thing straight out, so you haven't had to do all the searching. So if you want to be clay pigeon shooting, you don't need retrievers and gun dogs and anything else like that. You don't need to walk around. You can just stand there, which is okay, but you're missing out on a lot, aren't you? You know, you're missing yeah, out on a big You're extent. missing out on the most important part, I would argue. Yeah, I, I probably agree with you. Um, having said that, we now can breed some pretty damn good falcons in Britain, the best in the world. And they're like Ferraris. They're, they're high-performance animals. You've got to bear in mind that a good falcon can fly 700 kilometers in 24 hours. Okay, the length of Britain in 24 hours if it wants to. Because we satellite tag them up in the Arctic and you can see what they do. They'll fly over, clean over the tiger forest of Russia, one hop. <clears throat> um, so you try and fly a 
powerful falcon in lowland Britain, the moment you release it, it's going to see wood pigeons, jackdaws, peewits, any damn thing. There's stuff all over the sky. Uh, and although we've got good technology with GPS tracking and so on, um, it's quite hard to hawk with that kind of a falcon in lowland Britain. The grouse moors are still okay, although we've got a lot of problems with the eagles. Um, and in lowland Britain, you can fly things like goshawks, which don't go very far. But for a big falcon, it is very difficult. And people are finding with the robotic prey, they can go out after work. They only need one big field. They can fly it. Falcon does lots of good flying, and they're back in time for, for tea. Job done. Uh, and they get their falcon fit and flying well. But yeah, maybe then they've got a week or two holiday. They can go hunting real game. Okay, That's so it's like, an addition, and it allows yeah. you to, in in the busy normal lives that most people have, which is not flying birds of prey every day. Uh, well, not not doing it for recreation every day. Uh, they're able to train their animals so that when they do have the time off, they can go and hunt with them. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because a falcon can't be put away in the cupboard like a gun can. You've got to fly it most days to get it fit. So those are the problems. Now, if you if you look at horses, for example, we we still have horses for hunting, but they've been taken off into these other disciplines, and 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 the breeding of the horse, the morphology of the horse, the training of the horse for each discipline is different. Now you could say that show jumping. Um, it's completely separate from fox hunting, for example. Is that an addition or is it taking it away from fox hunting? And I would argue it's an addition. It's, it's people that show jump aren't necessarily the same ones that want to go hunting. Um, with the hunt racing that we do, as distinct from the flat racing, we are testing out several aspects of the falcon. So with the hunt race, a horn goes and the pilot launches the prey and the falconer slips the falcon. And the falcon has to chase the prey up to 400 feet in the air, 120 meters, which is the legal height for drones at the moment. When the falcon has reached, has climbed, so we've tested the climb rate of the falcon, how well it can climb. When it's reached the 120, another horn goes, the pilot has to dive and get that falcon down as quick as he can. So we're looking at the stoop of the falcon. It's got to be a teardrop stoop to get down quickly. And a young falcon is scared to do that. They have to practice and practice. I mean, you won't want to fly at 200 kilometers straight towards the ground unless you know how you're going to get out of it. So once the falcon stooped, as it approaches tree height, about 30 meters, another horn goes and the pilot has to survive 30 seconds with the falcon chasing it. So the falcon's come down. It's getting fairly sort of um, 
pissed off by um, this stage, having climbed that far and beaten it in the air, it really wants to catch it. And the pilot has, isn't very high above the ground, so he's got to have a... Uh, um, it's an exciting chase right over the head of the spectators. So you can see how well the falcon uh, can um, twist and turn and foot and so on. After 30 seconds, the next horn goes, the falcon has to take it in the air and land within a, a square, which is 100 by 100 meters, and not carry it out of the square. So we're testing all the different aspects that we need in a good hunting falcon. And so it's a bit like a hunter trials for horses, a bit like um, field trials for dogs, where you're emulating the hunting field and testing the animal. And some people get very competitive. Others don't enjoy it. They think, well, I'd rather just go shooting or hawking with my dog. But we're all different. Yeah. Well, I can see the, the repeatability of what you've just described makes it as a as a competition i suppose fairer because it has got there's a, a regimentation to it yes there is and there isn't there is but things happen so it's more like racing over the sticks with the horse um jumping like grand national for example uh it is it's got rules it's all supposedly fixed but stuff happens people fall off and whatnot and so right till the very end you don't know who the winner is going to be uh so the hunt race is similar um there's a degree it's not necessarily the same falcon every time will win because um it could just miss out and kill it outside the arena for example and have penalty points um Whereas the flat race is timed against the clock. It's almost a scientific trial. You know, that's all it is. But with the hunt race, there's an element of uncertainty, which all sports should have, in my opinion. And do you think that um, implementing this in some of the Arab countries where, as a result, or as you described, uh, as a result of uh, a large um contingent of people hunting a lot and wiping out various different species that this might allow some conservation balance there where there isn't uh, a desire or necessity to hunt everything that moves with the birds yeah, so, so they're breeding hubar in captivity in north africa and asia and the middle east i think they're breeding 50 or 60,000 a year which isn't much Absolutely. compared to 50 million of presents and so on we put out but it's a lot um and a farm hubara will set you back about 400 pounds for a hubara in a cardboard box and that's government subsidized so you take your cardboard box out into the desert you let the hubara out and it runs off like a chicken so you get your car and you drive after it tooting your horn so it takes off so you slip your falcon. The hubara's never flown in its life before. It just flies. Hubara comes up, just hits it up the bum, takes it down. Job done. If you want to go back and show photos 
on Instagram to your friends of how you've caught her bar and how clever you are, that's fine. But if you want to see a decent flight that goes quite a few kilometres, it isn't. So then people come to me and say, Nick, how can how can I make this Ibarra fly like a wild Ibarra? Whereas with the robotic one, we can make it fly like a wild one. So apart from the competition, we can go out to the desert and you strap your pilot in the back of a pickup or in a sunroof and he launches and flies the prey. And the falconers are in their cars with their falcons and whoever's due to slip, they drive after it and they slip, slip the falcon. <clears throat> so they're driving across the desert, all of them in their cars, screaming their heads off. And the pilot, if he's mischievous, he'll take the flight over some rough dunes or a wadi or whatever. And the drivers are all having difficulties. And just when they think they're catching up, he'll twist and go back different direction and they're all swerving around each other trying to get up, get to it. So they all have a lot of excitement and they hang on for dear life and they come down. The Falcons caught the robotic Kubara and they've all had a good time and a lot of chat and um, so on. And when you look at some of the sporting activities, a lot of this is what it's all about, really. If you look at something like driven pheasant shooting, uh, okay, some people want to just kill lots of pheasants, but a lot of people go there because it's a social thing, a bit of banter and that kind of thing. So, yes, an artificial prey can do quite a lot. I, I feel like I need to see this. <laughs> Has anybody filmed it? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we have a farm in Wiltshire called Rowley, which is the centre for falcon racing in the UK. If you Google Rowley.com, that's V-O-W-L-E-Y, yeah, you'll, you'll see some of that stuff. Or Google Row Falconry, which is we make the prey in our factory here in Wales. I'm going to check that out. Now, there was one other thing. Um, I feel like I could keep going on this for, forever, but there was one other thing that I definitely wanted to speak to you about before I, I let you go, uh, which was your work with the, is it Bevis Trust or Beavis Trust? Yeah, the Bevis Trust. Bevis Trust, okay. Okay. Richard Jeffries was a writer in the mid-1800s who wrote about gamekeeping and so on, and he wrote a book called Bevis, The Story of a Boy. And I was I was born near there in Wiltshire. And it reminded me of my childhood. So I'm down in West Wales, and whenever I've made any money, which is less and less nowadays, I've bought up a little patch of land. And now we have about 300 acres here. And uh, it's four farms stuck together. It used to be dairy farms. We just have sheep and we make silage. But we've taken about 30% of the land out of agriculture, and the modern word is rewilding, but we've done that over the last 40 years, and built some lakes and ponds. And we have beavers, and they've dug a whole load more ponds. And uh, 
Now, yeah, we have kingfishers and um, water rails and all sorts of funny things. Um, now you've got a well, certainly where you are in Scotland, you've got Tarradale and people rewilding or Nep down in Sussex. Um, they started to realize that you've got to do more than we have been doing. And you've got extremists who just want to wild the whole damn place. You've got others who are more concerned about food production. And I don't know if you heard on the radio this morning, the English government um, are kind of giving up on the rewilding side of ELMS, the Environmental Land Management Scheme, and going back more towards a higher level stewardship scheme. I don't know if your your listeners know about those kind of things. We have a fairly global contingent who listen. I mean, I, I know of the schemes just because uh, I know of th- yeah. mostly through farmers. Um, but this was basically to en- encourage people to set pieces of land aside in riparian zones and tree planting and that sort of thing. Exactly. So, so basically, we've got um, a bit of tension between the having to produce food for increasing numbers of humans, farming, and what to do about wildlife and climate change. We've retired, if you like, all the parts of the farm which are steep or wet, not suitable for agriculture. We haven't lost a lot of agricultural production, but we have gained a lot for wildlife. And that can be done all over the place. It's not an either-or situation. And in some places, maybe East Anglia, which is you know, good arable grade one land, it's going to have to carry on being farmed most of the time. But most of Wales, I think 95% of Wales is grade five or grade six land, which means it's you can't plant a crop in it. And uh, it's only good for things like sheep and cattle uh, at best. So a lot of that land actually isn't producing much. Uh, food and uh, most Welsh farms I think 95% of Welsh farms are totally reliant on the farm subsidies which are being phased out at the moment so what are they going to do good question what are they going to do and what's the government going to do they've been talking about all of these wonderful wildlife schemes but at the end of the day um, a project-based thing. Say you give a grant to a farmer and say, right, plant up 10 acres of woodland. Well, that's fine. So he plants up 10 acres of woodland. The grant is spent planting the 10 acres. He's lost 10 acres of agricultural land and hasn't got any money to feed the kids. So it's not a, a model that's really working. And a lot of things are hitting the fan at the moment. I was in New Zealand before when they had subsidies and then later in New Zealand they took off the subsidies, there are a lot of suicides in the farming community. Just not not able to make it work anymore. No, no. And, of course, in New Zealand and Australia, they have. They're they're much more extensive rather than intensive. I've got a son out there. He, He milks 500 cows. 
their their viable units have to be bigger, and their welfare elements um, are not as strong as in Britain. In Britain, we're so hot on welfare. Don't get me started on some of the things farmers have to comply with. Uh, all that welfare stuff is being farmed out to other countries. So we're trying to compete with other countries, such as Australia, you know, the new trade agreement with Australia. Um, we, we as farmers in Britain cannot compete with other countries who have lower lower man costs and lower welfare standards. It's always been insane to me that if we were going to set whatever you think of them, uh, whether you agree or disagree with them, if you're going to set welfare standards in your own country, that anything that you then import, if it's a comparable product, so pork, for example, um, should come from somewhere that at least has the same, if not better, welfare standards. Otherwise, what's the point of having the welfare standards in your own country? Byron, you're so logical. You'll never make a politics. <laughs> you're just exporting the you're exporting the problem to another part of the world. It's a bit like biofuels. You know, we we yeah. put this into our fuel here, but all we've done is export a massive biodiversity crisis to another part of the world that nobody can see. Yeah. Well, lots of yeah. people can see, but no one sitting on their sofa in uh, the middle of London or Edinburgh or any big city cares about the hundreds of thousands of acres in Central Africa or in South America where they, they burnt it down and planted crops so that we can fill our tanks. Exactly, exactly. Um, exporting your moral dilemma. <laughs> yeah, now, that's, that's exactly what dilemma. it is. I like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, at the same time, us Brits, we're damn pompous. I was at um, a CITES meeting in Nairobi, in Harare, some years ago. CITES is the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species. It's just happened in Panama last week. So I was in one in Harare, and there were four African countries who had a problem with elephants. Uh, Botswana, Zimbabwe, I think Zimbabwe. Namibia and Zambia. I can't remember which four it was. Anyway, they they those elephants were causing so much habitat damage. They needed to cull about ten thousand. And at the CITES meeting of the parties, um, you had all these countries, such as Britain, saying, "No, no, no! You shouldn't do this. You know, you've got to look." After elephants, they, they you can't go around killing elephants and selling ivory and so on. And there's a point about that for sure. But they're not having to face the realities of managing elephants on the ground. So after the debate, in which they got voted out by by other countries such as us, one of the guys from uh, Botswana, I think it was. He came up to me and said, well, Nicky said, it's all very well, he says. Will you take the 10,000 elephants? <laughs> and I, I, had, I had visions of 10,000 elephants being offloaded off cargo planes at Heathrow and going down Slough High Street. Um, <clears throat> there, in Britain, we, I mean, I've had to fight for beavers. 
there's a whole load of people can't even cope with the idea of beavers. And I'm sure in Scotland you've you've heard all the debate with lynx and wolf and God knows what. Um, here in Britain, we just cannot tolerate anything that's a bit inconvenient. Yeah. You said you, you have beavers on, on your farm? Yes, we have three or four families of beavers on different parts of the farm. And we produce beavers for other projects. Um, and we've been doing that for about nine years, I think. Uh, so we've been able to study quite closely what beavers do and don't do. Um, but, yeah, I mean, there's places where you don't want beavers, but there's lots of places where beavers can manage and people hardly know they're there. It's a question of we, we killed them all off and now we're just not used to having them. So when, um, when you said at the at the start that you were you'd been checking beaver traps all morning, I'm assuming that was live traps then for other yeah, projects. Yeah, case, tra case traps. Yeah. yeah, this in the autumn we're trapping juveniles to move them on because otherwise, um, well, you know what teenagers are like—they're trouble. <laughs> Well, I, I feel like we could do an entire show on beavers, but I do want to pick your brains on them just for a couple of minutes, which is how did you see the, or how have you seen the habitat change as a result of having them there? And, you know, one of the, I have them not very far from the house here, um, within about 15 miles. And one of the arguments that is often made, particularly up here, is that, We've spent a lot of time and a lot of money opening up waterways to allow salmon to spawn in upper reaches, a species that we are rapidly losing, uh, the Atlantic salmon. And uh, having beavers in the landscape may restrict access, important spawning access, when they come to run the rivers. Now, I was having a conversation with uh, um, some scientists from Yale University when I was at a Trinchera ranch in Colorado a few months ago and they were doing there were no beavers there but they were running a five-year study putting in beaver dam analogs to simulate having beavers in the landscape to see how they would impact the habitat specifically there because they have native cutthroat trout which are threatened in, in many parts of north america uh and that was not something that i ever heard anybody talking about here with the the beaver studies you go back 15 years was trying to work out how how if we did bring them back what was going to change rather they brought them back and then studied it after but you've obviously been doing it for a long time so i'm curious to see um or to hear how things have changed yeah. i'm assuming okay, for the well, better beavers have been studied to death there's so many studies on beavers in so many different languages and so many different places Everything's been done. The fishermen, uh, and we get them here, um, but some fishermen say, oh, well, you're building dams, you're stopping the salmon running. Um, but there have been studies, uh, and I think if you Google it and get into it, you'll find some of those studies and PhDs on it, um, showing that the beaver dams are permeable to fish. And, of course, when we had beavers here, and Wales was one of the last strongholds, we had them here in the 1600s, um, people were feeding salmon to the workers and com 
people and the workers were complaining about having to eat salmon more than three days a week. You know, we had plenty of salmon when we had beavers. And if you go to Russia and and Sweden, the beavers back in Sweden now, if you go to some of those places and in North America, the beavers do very well alongside a migratory salmonid. Um, but it's it's more than that. The beavers will hold water in their beaver ponds. And I think in Colorado, but certainly some of those um, um, Central American states, they have found benefits from the beavers maintaining water courses through the dry season. Here in Wales, they they build lots of ponds because they dam and dam. You get terraces up the valleys of ponds. And those ponds then host the dragonflies, um, all sorts of invertebrates, and then on to the next level um, of um, things like kingfishers, um, wagtails, and so on. Um, right the way up to, like, on one of our ponds, we've, we've been having six cormorants. And they found that trout grow faster and bigger in a beaver pond than in the open river because the food supply is better. So um, there's a lot of advantages. Now, when you're looking at wildlife issues, it's very quick to go to a utilitarian argument. Is this animal good for us or not? If it's a rat in the house, we condemn it. Is a deer good for us or not? In moderation, maybe yes. Too many, maybe no. This is a utilitarian approach to wildlife management. And it's a good approach, but it has its limits. You also have to look at the philosophical approach to wildlife management and, and say to yourself, we're just, humans are just one of the species here in this whole spectrum of habitat. Shouldn't we be trying to have the full range of diversity that the habitat is capable of, rather than just measuring a species uh, against its utility or otherwise to our species? Uh, and I personally feel that, uh, say beavers, yeah, they've got their good points, they've got their bad points, but that isn't the point. The point is they are indigenous species and we should not have crowded them out. Yeah, and I think the other aspect to that is that it has been our inherent inability to value the utility of different species because we don't fully appreciate how everything is connected. Very true. And I mean, I don't want to sound like a completely old fart of a humbug, but there's, you know, in Britain, we have an increasing human urban population. And maybe they've learned about wildlife on, on TV, but they don't have 
much of a realistic appreciation of of wildlife, how it's all interconnected, and how we impact on it with what we do. Uh, I mean, in New Zealand, um, where we've got a lot of uh, introduced species which are causing a lot of impact on the native species, in some places, the school kids, they'll get a gold star if they've managed to catch a stoat in their trap. We try and have all the school kids setting their traps and have traps all over the place, 50 metres apart. And they'll get special gold stars for what they catch. Can you imagine that in an English school? <laughs> no. No. No, no, no. No, they'll, everybody will be busy hugging everything inside. <laughs> um, so, so it is a struggle uh, to look at the, the habitat in the round, not just look at it from the point of view of rewilding, but also how we feed people and how it's economic and how it works socially and culturally. Yeah. Valuing nature is, uh, I don't, well, we've done a very poor job of it. And I don't think we really understand even today how important it is uh, for it to be around us as humans, uh, particularly as more and more people move out of the countryside and into urban areas. Although there has been a slight, slight reversal of that, I think, over COVID with people realizing that when they weren't allowed to leave their homes, that uh, being stuck in urban environments uh, behind your closed doors is not particularly pleasant and they'd rather be out in the countryside. But uh, I imagine that that might reverse itself once people realize it's actually it, it, it's it's also not that easy living in the countryside. There's a lot of things that, uh, particularly here at home uh, in the UK and in Scotland in particular, that make it pretty hard. I mean, fuel pr prices, just to name one. Now, you if you live far from any services, everything costs you money as soon as you leave the door. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. Let alone if you live in an isolated place, you're never going to go to the opera. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is true. Or you have to make a very concerted effort to travel to London or Edinburgh or something. But recently, there was a private member's bill in Westminster um, proposing a right to roam across lowland Britain. Uh, all farmland, fields, lakes, people could just walk where they want. You have that in Scotland. They want that in England. Well, um, the disturbance level is too much, let alone the loss of land value because you've taken away uh, an important component of the concept of private land ownership. Uh, no, I don't think that's going to get through, but it's on its way one way or another. And I know during COVID, when people couldn't get out, a lot of ground nesting species did very well. Yeah, yeah. Because they didn't have dogs wandering all over them. Yeah, this it's the... Uh, this is. 
there's a, a conflict. Yeah, there's a conflict there. We, we're continually encouraging people go and uh, you know appreciate the yeah. nature around you. Spend more time in the countryside. Walk the hills along the rivers, and it is good for people. And you you want people to do it because you want people to care about the world yeah. around them. But our presence in those places will always impact it. And that's a small yeah. example. And one person isn't really going to make much of a difference, but we we have lots of people doing it. And so yeah. I, I think that all we can really ask is, yes, go and appreciate those places, but do it with your eyes open so you understand what you're impacting. And take the time to learn a little bit about your environment so that maybe you don't walk your dog in certain places at certain times of year, so you're not affecting ground nesting birds. Some places have signs up to let you know that, but if you're going to utilize the countryside, you have a responsibility to also understand it. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, I agree with you 100%. Uh, the problem is in applying it. Yeah, no, this is true. That's the problem because right. you only need a small percentage of people uh, causing 90% of the damage. You can say Sweden and Scotland, well, it works there, but the, the pressure is very different in southern Britain. Oh, very different. So, I mean, we've, only, we've got yeah. 5 million people north of the border. You have 60 million people minus Wales, I yeah, think, exactly. uh, south of the border. So yeah. it is like very different. No, not at all. It's neither or. It's a matter of degree. Nick, it's been wonderful yeah. to speak to you today. I, I could have carried on for another hour, and I, I would love to meet you in person at some point, and I would love to see the see some of the things that you're up to with my own eyes and not just uh, on a video. But uh, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Lovely to talk to you, Byron. 